How's everyone doing? Doing well? I, I do agree with Thaddeus. Everyone in here looks extra beautiful this morning. Uh, so uh, way to November it up really, really well. Uh, really excited to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Pastor Alberto. For those of you that don't know me, I want to welcome everyone joining us uh, online. Uh, we are in a two-week sermon series. Uh, this is our last week called a, a, a Beautiful Life and really experiencing and kind of diving into how uh, generosity is this beautiful act of worship that we get to participate in um, and worship God with. And so last week, if you were here, uh, we kind of closed this sermon, uh, kicking off a brand new tradition in our church called The Big Give. And it was so exciting. So what we did is, is we took one day to raise up a, a really big offering and then give it all away to an organization in our community that's doing amazing work to serve the city's needs. And so we set a goal of $1,800. And in one day, we raised $2,231. Let's go, church. That's where you come in and clap because you are so amazing. Uh, But we went above and beyond uh, because of your generosity all year uh, in tithes and offering into the Benevolence Fund we were able to contribute an additional $1,000. Uh, so we showed up, my wife and I and my son, to the Hayes County Food Bank. They did not know we were coming. We handed them a check for $3,231, and they just lost it. It was, it was amazing. Uh, it was such a powerful moment where I said, hey, this is from the Springs Church. There's a congregation in San Marcos that loves what you're doing, and we want to bless you guys. So much so that they posted on, on their Facebook. They said, in a single day, uh, the Springs collected more than $3,000 to provide meals for their neighbors in need. This is so amazing, right here. What a powerful and generous congregation you have. Uh, That is amazing. This is right here, a a prophetic statement of the type of church that we're going to be in this community, uh, where the people out there look in here and say, what a powerful and generous people the Springs in. Springs Church, we will be known as a powerful and generous people. And so I want to say thank you so much to everyone who contributed and played a part uh, in this big give. Thank you for worshiping God with your finances. So let's give it up one more time to the Lord and thank you all for participating uh, and making this possible. Uh, so this morning we're going to actually close out our sermon series on generosity as we look at the second place in scripture where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Uh, for either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Twice in the New Testament, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. And so last week we looked at Luke chapter 16 uh, and he commanded us to serve God with our money by using the resources that he's blessed us with to bless others and to serve others. And so we put that into practice last week. We said, we're gonna use the money that God has placed in our account move it to a different account, and then let it move through the springs to go bless the Hayes County Food Bank. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at the second place we see this command, do not serve God and money, which is found in Matthew chapter 6. And so uh, because I'm feeling a little extra holy, we're going to look at another place in scripture called uh, uh, in Philippians chapter 3. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And if you have your Bible, let's go to Matthew chapter 6, put a finger there. And then go to Philippians chapter 3, which is towards uh, the end of the New Testament. And we're going to look at two places in Scripture that uh, speak to the subject of generosity. If you're joining us online, I invite you to stand with us as we honor the reading of God's Word. Uh, Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 first, uh, verses 17 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 21, it says this, Brothers, join me. 
and uh, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Praise God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 19 through 24. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. With the remaining time we have together, I have two points that's going to frame this text. Number one is the empty belly. And number two, the filled heart. The empty belly and the filled heart. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name uh, and we praise you uh, for uh, meeting every single one of our needs. Uh, I praise you for empowering us to be a generous people who would use the resources that you bless us with to bless others in our community. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that as we worship you in the word this morning, that you would give us supernatural power to look into this text, be convicted and transformed by your spirit, um, and leave in, in more awe and more in love with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, so uh, my morning routine is, is pretty consistent. My son likes to wake up early, uh, earlier uh, than I would like. And so he wakes up with me at about 6 a.m. And I try to be a good husband and let my wife sleep in. And so what we'll do is we'll sit on the couch and, and we'll just start watching YouTube videos, like worship videos. Uh, I don't say this to sound overly spiritual. It's just my hobby, okay? And uh, I like to just play old school videos for him, some of the stuff that really captivates my heart. And he's like so uh, aware of what he's watching. So he'll lift up his hands and start worshiping. He has no idea what he's doing, but it's, it's so cute. And so we're sitting there, I'm, I'm half asleep and uh, we're watching uh, some random worship song. And, and you know that part in a worship song where like, like it's just kind of building up and, and you just feel the Holy Ghost tingles and then heaven's about to come down and you just feel like a moment of breakthrough in the, the moment of worship. Uh, right before that happens, there's a divine interruption. An ad pops up. And I'm thinking to myself, who puts ads in the middle of these worship songs where it's like building up to worship Jesus and then all of a sudden you're interrupted with, if you want to experience an adventure in Aspen, visit aspenadventure.com. Jesus, Jesus. And I'm like, no, this is, this is terrible. Uh, and it feels like 
there's always an interruption and there's always an ad somewhere. So it had me thinking about ad and advertisements. And, and, and what I found out, I did some research. And, and in the 1970s, uh, Americans were exposed to an average of 500 ads per day. Uh, these ads would appear on buses and bus stops, trains, subway stations, billboards, newspaper, magazines, television. About 500 ads per day. Today the average person is estimated to encounter 6,000 to 10,000 ads every single day. That is a lot of advertisement. And these ads are everywhere. They're on YouTube. They're on every single website you visit. They're on every single Google search you make. They're on Hulu, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. While you're pumping gas, there's ads playing on the little screen saying, hey, you know what sounds really good right now? A Krispy Kreme donut. Go after this gas station trip and get a Krispy Kreme donut. They are everywhere. They interrupt your favorite podcast. They appear in the form of Amazon recommendations. 6,000 to 10,000 ads just flying past us every single day. Now, why do I bring this up? The reason I bring this up is because the world that we live in, the world that you and I live in, money has been propped up as the king. And money has made this promise that if you can get more of me, everything will be better. And money doesn't see people. Money sees consumers. And the goal of ads is to attract consumers. Now, I'm not saying ads are bad, but they have contributed to the rise in materialism and consumerism that has been the opponent of the gospel. We're coming up on Thanksgiving this week, and what's immediately after Thanksgiving? Not Christmas, Black Friday. Yeah, Some of you guys were extra holy, said, yeah, Christmas is coming. And then there's Cyber Monday, and then there's other stuff that like, oh, you know, Shop Local Tuesday. Uh, there's so much random advertisements and consumerism in our society. And in this week, that's supposed to be really dedicated, at least around uh, giving thanks and being content as Christians in the gospel. It should be our, our primary focus. It seems like we're anxiously awaiting what's going to be the deal. Uh, What's going to be the Black Friday deal or the Cyber Monday or the special uh, that that I sort of put my money towards? The world that we live in is about materialism and consumerism. And when materialism and consumerism uh, become the religion that we live for, it's obviously an opponent of the gospel. Uh, Sky uh, Jahani in his book Immeasurable says this, when we approach Christianity as consumers... Rather than seeing it as a comprehensive way of life, an interpretive set of beliefs and values, Christianity becomes just one more brand I consume, along with Gap, Apple, and Starbucks to express my identity. And the demotion of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and good works, but rather the perpetual consumption of Christian merchandise and experiences, music, books, t-shirts, conferences, and jewelry. Christianity becomes just one more brand I consume to express my identity. And the problem with this is that Jesus didn't die to become an additional element in our life that we use to express our identity. 
Jesus didn't die so that we can attach Christianity to our Myers-Briggs and Enneagram and however you want to label yourself. And it's an additional thing that, that we align ourselves with. Rather, Jesus died so that we could become his identity. Jesus didn't live and die for you to become partially identified with him and align yourself with the parts of his message that you like. Rather, he lived and died for you to set you free from yourself and from the power of sin and darkness that keeps you enslaved and keeps you from fully identifying with him. Jesus lived and died for us so that we could submit every area of our lives to his word and to his rule and reign. The danger in approaching Christianity as a consumer is that you will make the fulfillment of your personal desire the highest good. In consumerism, the fulfillment of personal desire is the highest good. And so we'll use money to get the lifestyle and the products that will meet our desires for comfort and happiness. We use money to get us into the house or the car that shows the world, hey, look at me, I'm successful. We use money to justify ourselves with clothing, material possessions, an Instagrammable lifestyle that shows others around us, I'm significant, I'm beautiful, I'm worth loving, give me the likes. Consumers believe that the fulfillment of personal desire is the highest good. God doesn't call us to be consumers, church. He calls us to be disciples. And as disciples of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's will is our highest good. As disciples of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's will is our highest good. And there is a way that we can use money that that glorifies God and is for our good. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus offers a way of living where our appetites are satisfied and fulfilled, not through consuming, but through receiving his grace, his presence, and his life. Ads, these advertisements that we encounter every single day, the reason they work is because they speak to our appetites. They speak to a hunger inside every single person, a hunger that wants to be satisfied and fulfilled. And the world we live in says that if our appetites and desires are fulfilled, then we will experience life but there's never lasting satisfaction and fulfillment, is there? Where does this come from and and why do we live this way? Uh, Go with me to Philippians 3, verse 18 through 19 as we discuss our first point, the empty belly. Verse 18, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So we're gonna focus on this phrase in verse 19 for a little bit. Their God is their belly. In the scripture, the belly or the stomach represents a a few things in this ancient Hebrew uh, Jewish world. Uh, One, it's a positive image for for beauty, for strength, and for wealth. Uh, Songs of Solomon 7.2 says, Your navel is a rounded bough that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. What a compliment right there that is. 
Some scriptures represent the belly as the inner self, uh, as, the, as the essence of a person, the place of the mind and the soul and emotions. The belly is said to represent the condition of the soul. Uh, we've been going through this verse a little bit uh, in, in John seven thirty eight. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Uh, other translations put it this way. Uh, he that believeth in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly. Uh, shall flow rivers of living water. This idea that, that the belly and the heart are almost the same and synonymous, the place of the mind, will, and emotions. And so one of the ideas that we see in Scripture is that a full stomach represents satisfaction and an empty stomach represents discomfort and a longing for fulfillment. The belly has also negative imagery in the Scriptures. Uh, it symbolizes greed and destruction, um, we see a very, very familiar example, Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, um, because you have done this, because you have t- tempted Adam and Eve to disobey me, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so uh, the belly kind of represents sort of uh, this negative imagery for destruction and suffering and chaos, so much so that the psalmist says in Psalm forty four twenty five. For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. That in this moment of confusion and destruction and suffering, his condition is no more different than the snake on the ground who's been cursed to destruction. We see the belly represent greed. It represents the cravings of the flesh that oppose the will of God. Uh, the idea is that the belly, the stomach, the inner person is hungry for something. Uh, and the flesh, the, the mechanism that opposes the spirit of God, will do whatever it takes to satisfy this hunger, even if it means opposing God. So this is what it looks like. Maybe you're hungry for approval. So you feast on a lifestyle, your lifestyle of choice and you try to play the part that people uh, want you to play so that they can accept you. Hungry for approval so you adopt this uh, partying lifestyle because you think that if I can become this type of person, then I'll have a friend group that accepts me. Hungry for power so you prey on the weak or grass for control by any means necessary. Hungry for intimacy so you try to satisfy this, uh, this relationship, this hunger for relationship with relationship after relationship. Or you look to your spouse or your partner to fill this void in your heart that only God can fill. Hungry for success or whatever definition that looks like. So you'll go into massive amounts of debt to prove to the world that you're successful and that you're worthy. Hungry to prove yourself worthy. And so you'll adopt a lifestyle that Jesus never called you to because you think the world will approve of you. Hungry for a new stage of life. Uh, hungry for these desires to be fulfilled. So much so that the fulfillment of them becomes the ultimate pursuit of life. Now, why does this matter? Why are we talking about the belly? Ecclesiastes 6-7 says, All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
And the idea is that no matter how hard we try to fill this inner hunger, we can never be permanently satisfied. And Paul says, for this reason, their end is destruction. Because they've made God their belly uh, and because they've set their mind on earthly things, there's no good life that will come out of this. And so what does this have to do with money? After all, we're wrapping up a two-week series on money. Hear me, church. If the mind is not set on God, it will be set on money. Because money will be the resource that you try to use to satisfy the longings of your heart that is meant to be satisfied by God. And when the human mind is set on earthly things and the, and the belly, the inner person has an appetite for selfish ambition and greed, the outcome is always destruction. You know this to be true. Marriages fail. Relationships fail. People's lives are ruined when the pursuit of money and the pursuit of satisfying these internal desires become the ultimate pursuit in life. If there is a hunger in your heart that isn't being brought to Jesus so he can satisfy it, then that hunger is being brought to a false God that Jesus calls mammon. And this false God of money and material possessions promises to satisfy the appetites of our hearts, but only leaves us empty. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says this because he knew the greatest temptation that you and I would face is to believe that our appetites must be satisfied. And that is one of the greatest temptations that the enemy has implanted into our mind. If there is a desire in your heart, it has to be satisfied. And unfortunately, it's one of the biggest lies that we are fed, that every single desire you have must be satisfied. And the reason this is problematic is because we live in a broken world that's tainted by sin, disrupted by sin, and some of those desires that rise up in us are not God's desire for our lives. Some of these hungers that we experience and the things that we want to feast on are not God's will for our lives. They actually oppose his will. And Paul says leads to our destruction. They're not life-giving. Jesus doesn't want us chasing money to satisfy fleeting desires. And that's the reason why he speaks into this. Hear me, Jesus does not want you to spend your energy chasing money, believing that that will satisfy you when he's face to face with you and can meet every single one of your needs and fulfill you like nothing this world has to offer can. He speaks directly into this and he says in Matthew six nineteen, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So this is so amazing. When Jesus says, don't do something, uh, he's not trying to restrict you. He's trying to set you free. Hear me, when Jesus says don't do something, he's not trying to restrict you or take something away from you. Rather, he's trying to give you boundaries for you to flourish and to ultimately set you free. So whenever you're in the scriptures and you're reading the Bible and you see something that God says do not do, thanks be to God that you have a wonderful shepherd who looks out on you and says, hey, it's probably not a good idea to eat the Tide Pods, so don't eat Tide Pods. 
He's not trying to restrict you by taking away your fun. He's trying to protect you and set you free. And so Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So notice, Jesus is not against treasures. Jesus is not against money and possessions. He takes issue with where we lay them. He takes issue with where we put them. God is not against money. He takes issue with what we do with it and how we use it. So why does does Jesus take issue with where we place our money? Let's look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, so as we discussed earlier, the, the heart and the belly are almost sort of this synonymous idea. The heart is the whole being. It is, it is the seat for the mind, will, and emotions. I, I love this quote from Grant Osborne. He says, what people treasure become the guiding principle for their life. What people treasure become the guiding principle for their life. Uh, people who treasure Jesus and who love Jesus, Jesus becomes the guiding principle for their life. People who treasure money, material wealth, and possession, the pursuit of that becomes the guiding principle for their life. So much so that they'll do whatever it takes and, and adjust accordingly to get more money, material wealth, and possessions. Whatever you treasure will ultimately guide you and lead you. So it goes back to what we've been discussing, that there's an appetite for ultimate significance, a hunger inside of us that wants to be satisfied and fulfilled. And that hunger and that appetite will influence the heart and cause the heart to worship anything or anyone that can fill that void. And if the void in your heart is not filled with God, it will be filled with something or someone else. And this is what will happen. Let's look at verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, uh, this kind of sounds like a, a weird poetry, kind of like solve the puzzle riddle that Jesus is saying, but it's helpful to remember that Jesus is a Jewish person. And he's speaking to a Jewish culture in their native language using figures of speech and illustrations that would speak to their heart, that would speak to his audience. And so when he starts talking about the bad eye and the good eye, his people would be like, oh man, that makes a lot of sense. I see where you're going with this. And uh, because the reason is that the good eye and the bad eye are these Jewish idioms, uh, uh, these figures of speech. So the good eye uh, means to be generous. A person who is said to have a good eye is a person who has practiced uh, generosity. It means to look out for the needs of others and practice compassion, uh, to be generous in giving to others and the poor. Now, the bad eye means to be greedy. Uh, One who is greedy with money, self-centered, stingy towards others, and blind to the needs of others is said to have a bad eye. Your eye is so bad you can't even see the needs of others. If you were greedy or stingy, people would say he or she has a bad eye. They're blind to the needs of those around him. And so these expressions are are still used in Hebrew today. Uh, Proverbs 22, verse nine says, whoever has a good eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor. So Jesus is using vision as a metaphor for 
perspective, uh, that there are two ways to look at the world. The first perspective that we can adopt is a kingdom perspective. That means to have a good eye. The second perspective is to have an earthly perspective, a bad eye. So what does this mean? Uh, If you have an earthly perspective, uh, this means that, that you look into the world uh, and, and when you look into the world, you begin to get hungry for more stuff, more money, more accomplishments, more fame, more significance, more power. And Jesus says that if you look out into the world and all you see is more, you want, uh, more stuff that you want, more things that you want to fulfill you, he says your eye will be bad and you will be filled with darkness because you're feasting on things that don't give eternal life. Ecclesiastes 6, 9 says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Another translation says it this way, enjoy what you have, what you can actually see rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless, like chasing the wind. If you find yourself hungering for more and more of what this world has to offer, you'll find yourself consumed with an unquenchable desire for more. On the contrary, a kingdom perspective looks into the world as stewards, not owners. A kingdom perspective looks into the world and sees the goodness of God woven into creation and the stuff that this world has to offer is simply a gift from the Father. And as James says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Jesus is saying that if we practice generosity, if we practice stewardship, if we practice giving and caring for the needs of others, uh, if we practice these things he says your body will be full of light jesus is challenging us to have a kingdom vision not an earthly vision and it first begins with setting our eyes and our hearts on him the father of lights for this reason jesus says in verse 24 no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money jesus knew one of the greatest temptations we would face is to believe money could satisfy all of our desires and jesus is so aware of this temptation why because he faced it himself A few chapters before Jesus is is giving these words and sharing this sermon, a few chapters before he unpacks uh, his theology on money, we find Jesus in the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And Matthew 4, 1 says that Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, we all face this temptation to fulfill our desires apart from God's will. But Jesus shows us that we can trust the father because he is all satisfying and all sufficient in his goodness. 
And we continue reading in, in, in chapter four and, 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 and Jesus is led up to this very high place and, and, and the tempter says, hey, if you fall off, why don't you command the angels to protect you? Or he's taken to uh, the height of the temple and says, if you bow down to me, uh, I will give you all of this and you can have all of the power and all of the prestige and, and you will be exalted. And there was this hunger for protection and security, but Jesus showed us that the Father is a safe refuge and we can rest in his unshakable security when he resisted this temptation from the enemy. There's this, uh, uh, he, he's brought with this temptation for power, but Jesus shows us that when we're tempted to our, assert ourselves in a world, in this world, and grasp for power to satisfy the hunger for control and significance, and we do this while robbing God of his worship, we can rest in Jesus who will exalt us and keep us, and we can look to the God who willingly humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. And know that wherever we find ourselves, as long as we're in the Father's hands, we're in the safest, best place we could be. When our parents, Adam and Eve, failed in resisting temptation in the garden, Jesus succeeded in the wilderness so that when our appetites arise and money says, hey, serve me, use me so that you can be satisfied, we can find power in Christ to resist that temptation and find in Jesus a satisfaction that is not dictated by money. It is not dictated by house size. It is not dictated by career. It is not dictated by stage of life. It's solely found in being fully identified with Christ where Adam and Eve failed to keep their eyes on God in the garden, when they failed to satisfy their appetite through obedience to the Father, Jesus lives in perfect obedience to the Father, an obedience that is not dictated by his own bodily desires, but directed by his love for the Father. And where we failed to keep our eyes directed on God, Jesus never failed. In fact, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we fail to look to the Father with our eyes and with our hearts, Jesus gave his whole self to the Father. Jesus gave his whole self to the mission of God, leaving behind the treasures and the splendors and the majesty of heaven. And Jesus shows us that when we give our whole selves, our sexuality, our money, our personality, the entirety of our lives, when we give it to him, when we sow and give faithfully, when we practice generosity, when we leave everything behind or we send it forward, we can do so with joy because the safest and most secure place to be is in the Father's hand and in his will. And in that place, hear me, church, God will show you a joy and satisfaction, a power and security, a type of provision that isn't dictated by what this world is giving you or taking away from you, but is found in an unearned relationship with him. The good news of the kingdom of God 
is that followers of Jesus can experience a life that is led by the Spirit, a life where our eyes are fixed on Jesus and he gives us a kingdom perspective for living in a broken world because when he dies on the cross and raises from the dead, he breaks the power that sin has over our lives. He breaks uh, the bondage of slavery that we find ourselves in and he gives us the power to not be driven by our flesh, not to be driven by our appetites or our desires, but he puts his Spirit inside of us that now empowers us to become more like him in every area of life. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on heavenly things. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns over every single square inch of the universe and over every single desire that would arise in our heart, and he's more than capable of fulfilling them. And as citizens of heaven, our hope is not found in what this world has to offer. Our hope is found in Jesus. And he has the power and ability to transform us and work in us and bring us to glory the way money, material, and possessions will never be able to do. Church, who are you serving this morning? Who are you pursuing the subtle temptation is to say, well, I'm, I'm serving God and I'm a follower of Jesus. But where are your eyes fixed when you run into some financial trouble? Where does your heart go when you're stressed out about bills? Where does your mind go when you look into the world and you see other people getting ahead of you? Or you're scrolling through social media and you see people living the life that you want to live and you think to yourself, if I just had a little bit more, I could have that. There's this subtle temptation that arises in all of us to think that if we had more money, material, or possessions, then our hearts would be satisfied. But Jesus has come to give us life and make us come alive in him in a way that the momentary things of this world will never be able to do. While this world is fleeting, Jesus is eternal. And he promises us a future, a citizenship in heaven that will never fade. Where are your eyes fixed? Are they fixed on your bank account? Are they fixed on your budget? Are they fixed on a a, a future that you long for? Daydreaming about a time where, where the struggles of this world won't be in that world. Repent and look to Jesus. Turn away from finding refuge and solace in the way that you think about the world or the desires that you have that you think will ultimately satisfy you and come to Jesus, the God of the universe who longs to fulfill you and satisfy you in a way that money, treasures, and possessions can't. Who do you treasure? Is Jesus your treasured possession? Is he the guiding principle for your life? Does he direct and lead every single area of your life? life or does something or someone else do that for you repent come to the god who treasures you 
experience this amazing gift of repentance where we get to turn to Jesus and he receives us and embraces us. Who or what are you chasing after to satisfy your desires? Is it money? Is it a new career? A different house? A different lifestyle? The Holy Spirit invites you to repent and chase after God with all of the energy and toil that you're putting into a thousand things and places. Come find rest in Christ. Let's close in prayer as we process these questions and transition to communion.